This week on the podcast, BMW hears your complaints but is not really listening. De Tommaso goes from supercars to shady cars, and bending the rules is back, this time with McLaren in the 90s. Let's start the show. <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John and let's get right into it. BMW says they hear you, but the numbers say you're wrong. Future BMW designs will be cleaner says the design boss. But Adrian admits that they do pay attention to the feedback. And while they hear and see the chatter surrounding their horrible designs, they have emphasized that the sales figures speak for themselves. So despite them saying, we hear you, we hear you complaining about our horrible designs, but we're not really listening because our numbers are up. BMW is selling 2.1 million cars globally, and that was in 2022, and the M division has experienced an 8.4% increase in sales compared to their previous year. So yeah, okay, they're listening, right? They hear our complaints. We've been loud about them since the buck teeth came out on the M car, and now with the M, the new M2, you know, we're hearing it again, and they're saying, hey, look, we hear your complaints. We hear everything you're saying about our cars, but at the same time, we're still doing well. We're selling a lot of cars, and we're still seeing an increase in sales. Now, Adrian Van Hoydoink believes in continually adding new elements to their designs rather than repeating past successes, which is their claim to driving what the current designs are calling for. And he emphasizes that their deliberate design process is not about experimentation, but ensuring future success. So his claim here uh, with this quote is that these new designs are not meant to impress you right off the bat, but they are meant to stand the test of time. And he does mention the Chris Bangle era, era, which is like the E90 era of, of design, which, you know, there were some questions around those designs when they came out. But honestly, I don't think it was anywhere near the level of uh, scrutiny in which they've received their, with their newer designs. So I don't think it's a, it's a fair comparison made, made by the current BMW design boss. Um, I, you know, I guess you think in the long term, this, these grills, these wild design ideas um, might stick um, and you're not looking to oppress people right off the bat. But I feel like there's a way to do both. It's not always one or the other, right? A car can look good now and stand the test of time. It doesn't have to be either or. Yeah, it's hard to achieve that. But if you right off the bat say, hey, look, we're not trying to achieve the greatest looking car immediately. We're trying to span, you know, the lifetime of that generation of the car, be it eight to 10 years. You're going to sort of turn that into a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's going to become that car. And honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, with the G87 M2 especially, 
I don't know that that's going to stand the test of time. Now, I've said this many times. I think the M2 probably is going to be the platform that has the most opportunity for change, aftermarket change. But I don't think BMW as a powerhouse manufacturer should be relying on the aftermarket to improve their cars. That's not okay, especially for cars that come in at that price. Um, and, you know, he, he goes on to mention that he recognizes that everyone may not appreciate their design choices at first, but he believes that eventually they will be universally liked. Uh, again, much like the Chris Bangle era of designs. I don't, I don't think that's true. I think this is a total cop-out answer. Um, and this whole time he's talking about, you know, listening to feedback and um, sales being uh, so good for them. So there's no real need for change and that these designs are meant to go long term and not immediate impact. But then at the end, he mentions and concludes by stating that the BMW's future grill designs will be cleaner and tailored to the overall proportion and desired expression of the vehicle. So in the same breath in which he said that these designs are the way they are because they're meant to uh, stand the test of time. He also says that, you know, we're listening to your feedback and we understand the designs that have come out are not good and won't stand the test of time. And therefore, they will be cleaner in the future. We're, we won't have the boxy M2 grills. We won't have the giant beaver teeth on the G80. I don't know. He's not saying those pieces. It might be that those things don't actually change. Who knows what they actually mean by cleaner? They might have thought they were making them cleaner with the uh, iterations that came out this time. They might have thought, hey, look, this uh, the new G87M uh, M2 grill is an improvement on the G80s that everybody complained about. It's cleaner. Who, I mean, the idea of cleaner is up to the interpretation of any single individual. So who knows what that will look like? But they're sort of fumbling around the idea now that they do definitely need to shake up their designs because what they're doing now is not working. And I mean, when the G80 complaints started coming out, when that car was getting ready to drop, there were discussions around, oh, well, the biggest consumer of these BMW cars is China and China is a little more receptive to those type of designs and there was all kinds of theories and marketing and media stuff floating around to sort of justify what was happening um and then now they've resorted you know to sales justifying uh what they're doing rather than justifying their designs by you know interest from the population and in the same breath saying okay we are going to change it because we know it doesn't work um, so they're sort of contradicting themselves here. It's nice to know that they are going to make some newer designs. Apparently the stuff that they're working on now is likely to release sometime in 2026. So we'll see what that actually means in terms of a cleaner design. I'm very curious what the next versions of these cars is going to look like. It's unfortunate because I really, really, really was ready to buy an M2. I was very, very ready to buy an M2. I really thought that was going to be my next car. And then it comes out and it was an immediate no for me. I actually went to go buy an E36 to kind of soothe that itch. 
um, because I definitely wanted another car and I thought it was going to be a new one. But nope, didn't happen. It did not happen. So BMW is listening. They they might not put a lot of weight to our words, but they are listening. Now, on the next story, this one's a little wild. This one might actually end up being a like Netflix documentary eventually. Day Tomaso, the famous um, high-performance sports car manufacturer, might actually finally meet its end, its final end, because it's, it's reached a few ends over the last century or so so this lawsuit alleges that de tomaso was a shell for shady deals de tomaso if you don't know is an italian automotive brand known for producing high performance sports cars the company was founded in 1959 by argentine italian entrepreneur alejandro de tomaso over the years de tomaso faced financial difficulties and ownership changes the company went through several periods of inactivity and revival of attempts and in recent years there have been efforts to resurrect the De Tomaso brand, with new models like the De Tomaso P72 prototype being introduced. So the, the company has had its up and downs over the years. Uh, there's been a few people that have tried to take advantage of, of the name and revive the nameplate um, to hopefully gain some traction. Uh, but it hadn't really worked. It just continued to change hands over and over again. But it seems that the De Tomaso brand was re rebuilt recently under some suspicious circumstances. According to a lawsuit filed by former employee Ryan Barris, who claims the company's owner owes him millions in unpaid wages and expenses, uh, the lawsuit alleges that when Barris was ousted from the De Tomaso, uh, was ousted from De Tomaso, an associate of Norman Choi, the current owner of De Tomaso, threatened Barris with violence, which forced him into hiding for more than a year until he resurfaced to file this lawsuit. So this guy was uh, afraid enough by of these threats that he went into hiding for a year. Now, this could be an exaggeration to favor the lawsuit to give it more credibility. Uh, let's, you know, look at this from all angles and all perspectives, but I mean, that's pretty insane. I mean, um, most of the time someone's going to threaten to punch you or whatever, and you know, you'll get mad, you'll puff your chest and whatever, but you won't really go into hiding for a year. I mean, think about what it would take for you to actually go into hiding after somebody threatens you. I think it would have to come from somebody that you know would be capable of said violence, right? Um, it's probably the only way I'd go into hiding for a year. And now he's out of hiding and really only to file this lawsuit. But the fact that he was a former employee, not just a former employee, but a major player in this revival, the De Tomaso brand, uh, gives this lawsuit a lot of credibility and really puts Norman Choi in a spotlight that I'm sure he doesn't want to be in. Now, the suit filed is 59 pages and it details financial allegations that include money laundering, self-dealing, pump and dump schemes surrounding De Tomaso, and Choi and another associate, Michael Choi, they're not related, which is strange, 
use De Tomaso as fronts for these pump and dump schemes to inflate the company's apparent financial standing. Their goal here with inflating the finances was that they wanted to sell the company. And they have a history of this, too. There's another associated brand, Apollo, in which they... They uh, they worked on the brand. Uh, Ryan Barris actually helped them on that brand, and then they sold it for somewhere like $120 million. So they have a history of working out these deals. There's no indication that that was an illegal shady deal, but apparently this one is. And in a statement from Ryan Barris, he mentions, For years, I dedicated most of my waking hours to developing a credibility-revived De Tomaso that was worthy of the brand's legacy. When we debuted the 72, the P72 and then subsequent stages of the brand's vision thereafter, I repeatedly heard from clients, dealer partners, and friends about, about how they sensed genuine creative energy and excitement around it. The client's dreams were the same as mine, to be part of the De Tomaso tradition and bring it into the future. The sense of betrayal I felt when I realized Norman Choi did not share those aspirations but was instead misusing the company for his own financial purposes and tarnishing what I had worked so hard to create was utterly devastating. And its implications for my clients and team broke my heart. While I still believe in the De Tomaso brand and its potential, I have to stand up for myself and my clients against what Choi has wrought. Now that's um, that's a pretty big statement. I mean, the 59-page lawsuit is a statement in itself, but to come out publicly and just start calling out these people uh, for what they have done as if they are already guilty, right? This is all alleged. I mean, that's pretty brave considering you just came out of hiding for an entire year because these people had threatened you with violence, had threatened your life. So you went in hiding for a year. Now you're back with 59 pages that say, hey, these are all the things you did. And now in the public eye accusing them. Barris in this lawsuit alleges that Norman Choi uses industry experience, contacts, personal relationships to create an automaker from nothing. Norman Choi and his associates secured the De Tomaso name, which was surrendered when the widow of founder Alejandro De Tomaso died and was left with the company. So the company changed hands for roughly a decade or so before Choi actually bought it. Barris said that he worked more than 80 hours a week to create a one-man automaker from De Tomaso. I mean, he makes it seem... Like, it was really just him working on all these things. And I get it for, like, a boutique shop like this. There isn't going to be a major staff. Um, but, I mean, if they're running with that thin of a crew, something's up. I mean, especially if you're trying to make waves in, you know, the million-dollar, billion-dollar echelon, uh, which you what you would expect the De Tomaso name to carry. So... Um, he was using contacts at automakers such as Roush and other manufacturers, and despite warnings that Norman Choi was lying about the company's performance, Barris said he worked tirelessly to create some some signs of a supercar maker. So up to this point, he was a very willing uh, participant 
not really knowing what was going on, but he his idea was we're going to revive the De Tomaso name to its former glory, and I'm going to be a major player in that. Um, and that was his motivation, apparently. You never know with these things, you know? Like, sometimes it's, like, the first guy to snitch is the one that saved type of scenario where maybe he was involved and he knew all these things were going on, but then he was kicked out of the deal and he's like, all right, well, if I'm not going to benefit from it, I have all the secrets. I am going to tell the world. I'm not trying to discredit him. Like I said, we just need to look at this from all perspectives. But being that he was scared for a year, hiding, comes out with a 59-page lawsuit that says these are in excruciating detail, all the crimes that you have committed uh, within your company, I don't know, that, that's, that's a pretty bold statement. I think that says everything that you would need to hear in order to go to trial, right? Not to actually say, oh, they did it. But, you know, there's enough here to make a compelling, compelling argument for what has gone down with De Tommaso. Now, money uh, for further development of the P-72 was actually paid out of pocket by Barris. So this is where I start to believe a little more that Barris maybe wasn't in on it or, you know, or maybe he thought he was going to get, you know, a lot of his money back through some of these criminal endeavors. I don't know. But I mean, a lot of the money that is currently owed to Barris from Choi comes from Barris actually putting the money to get the P-72 up and running himself. Choi initially claimed that $3.1 million would be invested into De Tomaso and would come from him personally. But that never happened. And what they found is that it actually came from a shady Hong Kong-based business called Sinovision. Barris alleges that the money was laundered through the shell company into De Tomaso to inflate the balance sheets once again. The, The overarching goal here is that we're trying to create... We're trying to get create a company with a re- established reputation and a earning sheet that says we are worth however many millions of dollars that Norman Choi is interested in getting from whoever's willing to pay for it. And you know what better name to use than the brand that was so highly regarded for such a long time and despite the fact that it's changed so many hands um, over the years still carries the pedigree of the De Tommaso name. I mean, in the car industry, De Tommaso was extremely influential influential, and is firmly, firmly carved into the history books and when it comes to the automotive world. So it makes sense that you would take a brand like this and try to uh, turn it into a company that on the outside looks to be worth a lot of money. But apparently during this whole time, the car was nothing the the company was nothing more than a house of cards it was ready to crumble at any point uh you've got the lead designer mechanic uh, literally every name in the shop you can call uh Ryan Barris funding this project as if, as if he's putting it together in his garage almost right of course he's working with we've mentioned names like Roush and other companies that are backing this project uh, but still, it doesn't seem to be more than, you know, I, I know YouTube channels that probably have more invested into it, maybe not in dollars, but at least in personnel and and planning and really the expectations of where they're supposed to complete versus what's actually happening here. 
And so the more that the lawsuit goes on, the less it seems that there's really anything there. I mean, other than this project, there's really nothing much coming out of De Tomaso. Now, those plans, um, you know, to go public uh, was what drive what was driving is what was driving all of this. And in 2021, Norman Choi began those plans. So it wasn't too long ago that they begun the plans to uh, to go public and make the company worth something. Right. And I think, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of this currently in the industry. This is separate from cars, but of companies that, you know, are worth a lot of money for inexplicable inexplicable reasons that they've gone public. I mean, there's many of them. I mean, there's I think Uber hasn't been profitable ever. That's kind of one of those companies. But anyway, they kind of wanted to go in this route. And Barrett's, Barris said Choi pressured him to use unreliable suppliers and partners to build the De Tomaso cars and became laser-focused in taking the company public to cash in. That was like the sole goal. It didn't matter, you know, who the partners were. It didn't matter where the supply, who the suppliers were in terms of parts. He did not care one bit the quality of this car, the P72. That that was not his interest. His sole interest was we need to make sure that the perception of the De Tomaso brand under me, Norman Choi, is the highest it can be so that we can get as much money as possible when we go public. And Barris also said that he was pressured to alter financials and that Choi was lying to deposit holders about the car's progress and timelines. I mean, you know, in terms of lying about the car's progress and timelines, that probably happens at every level of, you know, project cars. I think we even lie to ourselves about when these projects are actually going to finish, uh, about how much they're actually going to cost. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. But in terms of altering financials, now they've gone beyond just funneling money through shell companies to now fudging the numbers and getting other people involved, in this case, Ryan Barris. And what doesn't make any sense to me is that we already mentioned he was ousted from the company. Um, how do you fire someone with this much knowledge? I mean, did Norman Choi not think he was doing anything wrong here? I find that very, very hard to believe. Or it could be that in that world, in that world of money, that I have no idea, I have no idea what that world is like. Maybe funneling money through shell companies isn't really seen as anything crazy. Maybe it's seen like, you know, some of you out there who uh, who are writing off your uh, your mods on your cars because you're making YouTube uh, videos out of them. Where it's like gray area stuff that you can call on your taxes. I don't know. You know, maybe maybe that's that's the level of you know financial manipulation that goes on when it's when your earning is that high. I don't know, but it seemed very careless to fire someone who has this much information. And they realized it later, of course, because they threatened to kill him. I guess, or they threatened him with violence as a statement. They didn't specify what type of violence, but. If I'm hiding for a year, I'm imagining the threats that were levied were probably very, very, very serious in one way or another, right? And so um, it got to a point where not only were they uh, 
allegedly, right? Were they uh, funneling money through uh, shell companies? Now they're fudging the numbers on documents, and now they they're stopping their payments on suppliers and partners. I mean, this company is falling apart, according to this document. It's a, it's a fifty nine page sort of autobiography that covers the demise, the last demise of the De Tomaso brand. I mean, you're you're talking about uh, a document that screams desperation in terms of what they're trying to achieve. I mean, they're cutting every corner, screwing everybody that they can um, to attain as much value as possible. It's, it's a disaster. Now, when Choi chose to push through the company's public offering, Barris said he was forced out. So it was when they were about to go public after Barris had put in all the work in which he was forced out. It doesn't mention exactly why he was forced out. I don't know if he was in disagreement with them or something happened. Who knows? But he was forced out. And according to the complaint, Barris was told to uh, uh, submit a resignation letter that would absolve De Tomaso of any claims going forward. Um, so they knew, he knew a lot of information about what they were doing and their plan once they fired him is to say, Hey, write a resignation letter that says that everything you've seen here is above board. We haven't done anything wrong, that everything looks good. That way, if he decides to try to complain later by submitting, say, for example, a 59 page lawsuit, that people would say, hey, but you said that everything was above board when you left, and now you're saying it's not. So that would have hurt his credibility. But he decided not to do it smartly. He was like, no, I'm not doing it. Um, and as a result of not doing that, that's when he was threatened by an associate of Norman Choi. They don't really mention who exactly was the one that talked to him, but he feared for his safety um, and was told that things would not end well. I mean, this sounds like straight out of like a very stereotypical Mafia 101 mobster movie, right? Things will not end well. Very cryptic, not really straight into the point of where it's going to happen. What does that even mean? It almost seems like it's not even true, um, but was basically told that if he didn't comply, very unhappy things would happen to him. More specific than that, I don't know, but I imagine at the level at which they are committing financial crimes here and the trouble that they know they could get into, these threats are pretty heavy. And, I mean, I have to say it again, the guy went into hiding for a year. A year doesn't seem like a long time sometimes, but if you're on the run from someone trying to hurt you, I feel like that year is going to feel like forever. Longest year year of your life now barris said Choi did pay him thirty three thousand dollars despite promising him millions uh and barris admitted that he deferred his salary to keep de tomaso afloat but that was with the sole goal that at the end of all this he would be a millionaire through the work that he was putting in but instead, he got to write a 59-page lawsuit that is now uh, being carried forward, um, and we'll see what actually happens. I mean, this could be a very, very... 
uh, crazy story. I mean, the um, the criminal element to this story is significant because it's not just your average white collar financial crimes. There's actually someone who's been threatened and had to go into hiding for a year. So who are these people actually involved with, right? Where is this money coming from? You know, why are we getting shell company shell companies funneling money into De Tomaso from Hong Kong? There's a lot of questions that came out of this lawsuit that I'm very, very curious to hear. And I know that in general, I mean, a lot of boutique companies probably have some sort of reputation of shady dealings or dealings with shady companies. But, I mean, this is the first time that I would say somebody on the inside, maybe not the first time, but a pretty significant time out of a handful of times that somebody so high up on the inside is now saying, hey, look, I know everything that went down at the New Day Tommaso, and I can tell you that nearly all of it wasn't uh, above board. And even though, you know, there's a threat on my life in some way or another, I'm going to tell the world about this. So we'll see how this actually plays out. But so far, it seems like a pretty intense story. And, you know, hopefully nothing happens to Barris and we get to see the outcome of this. But it does seem like this might be the last time we see the rise of the De Tommaso brand, which is unfortunate. It's unfortunate that its story uh, has so many peaks and valleys and that it's going to end on a valley uh, as a result of this mismanagement and intentional criminal behavior here. It's wild. It's such a such a wild story. So we'll see what happens and we'll keep you updated here on 91 Octane. Now, moving on, BMW is attacking the blinker stereotype head on. You all have heard it. BMW owners don't use their blinkers. Why are they even there? But now BMW has introduced the iLane change. I know that this concept is unheard of. It doesn't even, doesn't even exist. I don't think there's this is an idea that I ever even thought of prior to this, if I'm being honest. But in the new BMW 5 Series, drivers will be able to change lanes on the highway just by looking to the side. That's right. Now, instead of BMW drivers just looking to the side and then charging into the other lane, they can look to the side and that will signal and then they could turn to the other lane. So we'll have a less frequency of BMW drivers not signaling. But jokes aside, uh, this highway assistance system allows drivers to go long distances on major highways without touching the steering wheel or pedals. And this includes the ability for drivers to change lanes just by looking at one of the outside mirrors. That's pretty cool. Like it's every time like some technology like this comes out, it's cool, especially when it's already releasing on passenger vehicles. This is not just a concept. It's pretty cool. But I think a major question we should always ask when these things happen Especially since I just had to code my battery. I think I, that's just still ridiculous. I installed a battery in the E92 yesterday um, and I had to code it, which I just, I mean, why? 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 Uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But anyway, what are we losing by gaining some of this technology, right? It isn't always, it's rarely, I would say, a win-win situation when, you know, something charges forward like this. Whenever you gain something, you're stand, you stand to lose something, right? Whether it's money, 
whether there's other things you value. Now, it, on the surface of it, this is cool, and automated lane changes are already possible, but the driver has to request it by using the turn signal. In this case, you are just accepting it by looking at one of your mirrors. And so with this new BMW system, the driver really only has to look at that side mirror and the car literally does the rest. But there's a caveat here. This only happens when the car suggests, suggests it. So in a scenario where you're on the, on the highway, there's a car in front of you going really slow, the car will propose, hey, would you like a lane change? And look to make sure that it's clear before it suggests it. Once it suggests it to you, you can look over at the mirror and that'll trigger for the car to change lanes. Or you can, I don't know what the gesture is for denying the request, but in order to accept it, you just look at the mirror. So it's not completely automated in that if it's not re being requested, you can just turn and look at the mirror and then it'll help you change lanes. It doesn't work like that. If it's not suggesting um, a lane change, then you still have to use a turn signal stock in order to engage the system. It could still merge for you, um, but it's not going to activate automatically in every scenarios. Now we get to the part where we start answering the question, what do we lose? So the way this works is that the system actually relies on a camera that monitors the driver. That's right. So 100% of the time in your car, there's going to be a camera facing you to read these gestures. And the same camera checks uh, you know, that the driver is watching the road. And if the driver isn't watching the road, warnings will flash inside the car and eventually the system will not work. And if the driver seems to be incapacitated, passed out, had a heart attack, I don't know, the car will slow to a stop and the hazard lights will come on. So there are some benefits here, but there are some drawbacks too, right? We're getting into a point with these cars where, yeah, I mean, at any given point out on out in public, you know, you can be found. You'll be on a million cameras, you know, whether it's an automotive camera, a security camera on a business, you're, you're always on camera. But now you're on camera inside your car and these manufacturers are monitoring your driving behaviors, which, I mean, most of the time there isn't really anything exciting going on in cars, but I just, I just don't like the idea of just being watched the whole time. And a lot of these cars are, you know, connected to Wi-Fi. So they could save that footage and then upload it and then BMW can do it, do with it what they see fit. They can, you know, read the data to adjust for features or adjust for gestures in terms of their technology, they can sell that data to insurance companies, right? So then insurance companies can make better assessments of uh, how to insure drivers or maybe use it in a case against you. There's always that possibility. Maybe the police, much like how they've done with the ring. I know this sounds paranoid, but this is real life. This is how it happened. In, uh, in, crimes that have been committed the police have requested video records from ring and ring accepted these requests and turned over footage there's nothing that is preventing us from saying that this is also possible with automotive footage um, if we get to that point right if it's being recorded and saved it could be that it's you can a police officer can summon it you know through a warrant or something um 
I know those are extreme cases, but at the same time, I don't know. I don't think it's something I want to deal with. Uh, being on camera the whole time. I'll just do it the old-fashioned way. I mean, we're solving for problems that don't really exist. Yeah, I guess there's a meme that BMW drivers don't use their blinkers. Um, I think at this point, that's, that's just taking a life of its own. I use my blinkers. I've used them my whole life, uh, at least since I was 16. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't I don't like the amount of tech. It's it's unfortunate because I don't think we're going to have the option with newer cars to not have the tech. We're going to have to pull out like, you know, the network cards on our cars just to make sure they're not connected to anything or sending information or receiving information in any, in any fashion. They're going to be like our laptops. We're going to have to download Norton antivirus for our cars. That's crazy. It's just too much. It's way too much, and it's not necessary. I understand convenience, but I'll just use a turn signal. Everybody's everybody's doing it. You don't need to offer that. It doesn't make any sense. I guess it's kind of cool, though, just to think. I mean, eventually, we're not going to really need to move. Everything is just going to do everything for us. That's the direction that we're heading in. Now, the final note on this is that the system can work up to speeds of 85 miles per hour. So after that, you're on your own, which makes sense, right? You don't re- you're not going to really, really need to go faster than that or at least legally be able to go faster than that in most of the country. So why uh solve for anything over 85 miles per hour? Um so that makes sense. Uh but still, there's a camera looking at you the entire time. Um I guess are you willing to sacrifice that? to be able to look over your mirror and have your car uh, change lanes for you. Um, I don't have any cars that do that. Actually, I don't even have any cars that tell me like the safe lane changing features, like that little light that appears on your mirror. I, I don't have any cars that will do that. The Colorado is the newest car to 2018, and it doesn't have any of that. I know a lot of cars probably from that year, luxury cars have it, even civics have it. I've seen it, but I don't have it. So I don't know what that life is like. But I know as a result of not knowing what that life is like, that I don't really need to know what that life is like. We can survive without it. But anyway, let's get into our next segment, Bending the Rules. And this is the second brake pedal edition. You want to get faster on track? Well, in the 90s, McLaren would tell you to add another brake pedal so the scheme right during the summer of 1997 a formula one photographer spotted micah hackinen's rotors glowing in the middle of a corner formula one drivers don't break mid-corner at least not if they want to go faster the photographer got curious and found an extra brake pedal so rival teams attempted to uh kind of shut it down right there's a secret advantage going on here and i mean the story went out went on much longer than that um mclaren came up with a solution they referred to as brake steer and the brake steer magic was worth nearly half a second per lap and it was built by about $50 worth of parts. It wasn't like a major thing. I mean, it was a genius idea, 
But it was it didn't take millions of dollars in R and D to figure this out. And then the deal was very straightforward in that it enabled the rear brakes to work exclusively on either the left side or the right right side, offering an advantage, you know, when accelerating through corners. So this resulted in an immediate boost in lap and lap time. And the concept originated from chief engineer Steve Nichols. And he had like a literal moment of, oh, yeah, this is this is a great idea in the winter of 1996. And he goes on to say that it was Christmas time and I was on holiday at my parents' house and lying in the bath. We typically set the cars up in, uh, with quite a lot of understeer. And at the time, we had fairly skinny rear tires and fairly meaty front tires. And I had this idea to put a rear brake on the corners to sort of dial out the understeer. Patty Lowe was head of R&D at the time, and this would be considered an R&D project. So I told him I wanted to try this thing where we have an extra pedal on the car and we put the right rear or left rear brake on the balance on the, uh, to balance the car. Eventually, he sanctioned the project. It sat on the test truck for months waiting to be tested, and finally we'd exhausted every other test item. At 5 p.m. or something at a Silverstone test, they said, let's try the brake thing. So that was the the genesis of the idea of the development of the project. And then we get into testing. The technology was fairly basic. All they had to do was put an extra uh, master cylinder on the car and a brake hose that went to the right rear caliper. So that when you pushed the normal pedal, it would uh, put both rear calipers on. And when you pressed the fiddle brake, what they were calling it, or ended up calling it, it only activated the right rear. And it was surprisingly simple to implement as a result. I mean, you're putting one caliper in. All you need is brake fluid, the caliper, the pedal, uh, the master cylinder, and the uh, brake cables. Simple enough. Right. And this is going to help them significantly in their races. Um, Tim Goss, who's the chief chief test team engineer at the time, said, we obviously had to check that we were clear on the regulation side. My recollection is that we were confident that it was legal. And we just went for it. In terms of how we got to the assembly um, and how we applied the brakes to one rear wheel, run one rear wheel, it was not much more than an additional pedal, a brake master cylinder plumbed in the right way. I mean, it was as simple as you can get with the current braking technology. It wasn't a you know giant fancy thing. It wasn't a thing that cost millions of dollars to develop. It was really just a random idea in the bath that went to the R&D guy and the R&D guy said, yeah, we can do that. We just need to put another caliper on, uh, on the car or have it be controlled by something else. Um, so now that they had the part developed and they're ready to start testing, they had to get it on track. So Micah Hackinen was the first person to test it. And this was in early 1997 and primarily because it was more challenging to install the prototype on David Coulthard's car. Because this was actually specifically designed for David because he used to say he didn't like oversteer. So this would allow him to tune the car to understeer and then have the brake help him in the corner. So to sort of offset, give him the best of both worlds. But he still used the, used the old-fashioned 
uh, third pedal. He wasn't using a hand clutch like most other drivers in F1 at a time. So then for him, it would have meant four pedals for him to control, whereas Micah was already using the hand clutch and therefore would be a third pedal within his cockpit. Now, this is what McLaren claims. It is possible that in the development of this, that third pedal would be easy to hide, right? It wasn't. It wouldn't be super suspicious to see a third pedal there. You could just say, "Oh, he's using a regular clutch," like David is. I mean, that's a that's a big change at that level, so it could be suspicious. But I mean, just something to think about. So they put in the extra pedal uh, in Micah's car, so he now had three pedals. Um, so he had the throttle, the brake, and what they are now referring to as the fiddle brake. And he was very open-minded about it. So he went out and he tried it. And on his first run, he was half a second lap faster. He would use the normal brake to slow the car down enough and then use the fiddle brake just to balance the car, get the car balanced and shoot out of the corner. So once Micah started figuring this, this out, David got a little more interested and he's like, oh, well, you know, you guys need to find how to put a fourth pedal in mine too. I want to be able to use this. Now, at this time, I mean, this is a clever interpretation of the rules. There's nothing that there's nothing that says this is against the rules specifically. There are some rules against automation. There are some rules about individually controlling, but nothing that says you can't run this very crude braking device, right? It's just a simple braking device to control the car. So they're technically within the rules. There's really no cheating going on, so to speak, here. Now, um, the team would make a decision for each circuit whether they would put the rear on the left or the right, right? It was one or the other. And depending on how many turns, how many left turns and how many right turns there were at each track, that's how they, they would decide to uh, set up the car. So they would move it as needed. And this was sort of the first iteration of this process. It did become a little more complicated during the 1998 year, but we'll get to the part where they don't really even make it that far. Now, as they're working through, through all this, they're like, this is genius. We're half a second faster. In F1, that's enormous. It's like, oh, we're going to have a great year. Let's start using it. That is until the journalist that I mentioned at the top of this story. So at first, no one was really aware of what the team was working on, but then the media started poking their nose. And following the Austrian GP, photographer Darren Heath uh, from the F1 racing, racing Magazine was reviewing his photographs from the race weekend at his office. And this was before the digital era, so he had to wait for his rolls of film to be developed. And when he got them back, he was surprised as hell to notice that both McLaren drives were, were captured had the rear rotors glowing mid-corner. And so he got to thinking, why are they breaking mid-corner? Why are they breaking out of the corner, right? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you break out of the corner? So he started to think of, you know, what might be the causes of this. And he speculated that an additional brake system might be in use. And he decided to attempt to get a photo from inside the McLaren cockpit. I, I'd say that's that's a pretty good journalist right there. I mean, to have the to understand the industry enough to know that something's up, you know, based on what he's seeing in the pictures. Granted, a picture 
says a thousand words, and in this case, it very much literally described a thousand words, you know, to get to this point. Um, he had the foresight to say, hey, something's going on here, and I need to cover it. So in the next race, uh, this was in Luxembourg, uh, the Luxembourg Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, uh, he made a plan and even arranged for people to call him on his phone if the McLaren team retired, right? If they had to end the race a little early um, so he could go find a way to take a picture of those cars. Well, in this particular Grand Prix, both McLarens retired from the race and Heath managed to get to the cars. Coulthard had left his steering wheel on and at the time these cameras were bulky so he couldn't actually get his camera and flash gun into the cockpit. But Micah had taken his wheel off. So Heath was able to fire off a few shots. Um, and when the pictures were developed, they showed the extra pedal in the car. And they knew that for Micah's car, it should only have a throttle and a brake. So the secret is out at this point. Ron Dennis was initially suspicious of foul play with the pictures. He thought other teams had found a way to get the picture. Maybe someone leaked it. But he did fri finally discover that those incriminating, incriminating pictures were taken at the track, which is fair game, by a journalist. So with the secret now out, rival teams now went on the adventure and mission. It was their duty now to uncover McLaren's methods and determine whether, whether it was legal or not. They had no idea, right, what they're doing with this, is it legal? Is it not legal? Is it part of some elaborate system that doesn't fall within the rules? Is it not covered by the rules? Do we need to figure out how to do this ourselves? Is this going to cost us millions and millions of dollars? I mean, whenever you're thinking about automotive technology, the first thing you're going to jump to, especially at the F1 level, there aren't any like duct tape mods that are going to get you speed. You're spending thousands of dollars per millisecond. That's sort of the level that you're playing at here. So a lot of these teams are going to start thinking, damn, we're going to spend a lot of money to catch up to whatever it is they're doing. And at this point, you know, they have enough information on time to know that they're definitely, definitely, definitely getting faster. So how do we do this? How do we figure this out? For the 1998 season, this is when uh, McLaren actually jumped up to a more advanced version of the technology, which allowed the drivers to choose which brake to operate through a switch. It was no longer that they had to set it up pre-race, which brake is going to go where. A switch could control um, you know, which brake they were going to uh, have individual control of during the race. And the rivals are up in arms at this point. I mean, now we're early into the season and they're still able to use the technology that's got a lot of suspicions on whether it's legal or not. Nobody wants to talk. They need to make the they need to have an investigation. But I mean, there's no real indication that anything is beyond the rules. That is until the Ferrari team gets involved. So they start to claim that it's four-wheel steering. Um, so their assessment was, okay, they're using the brakes on one side of the car versus the other side of the car to steer the car, which technically is kind of true, but not how Ferrari actually described it. And they sent the FIA pictures of the tank's um 
uh, on track and on the car and showing how they actually help steer and how it would work and sort of made a click case saying, hey, McLaren is cheating. Um, and in the end, the rivals won. And McLaren's system was and ended up being banned early in the 1998 season. And the basis on which it was banned was four-wheel steering. It was Ferrari's statement after all. So the Italian brand comes in, decides to throw its weight around, and sinks McLaren for is, for one of the most ingenious uh, implementations of a braking system, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, duh, like if you brake on one side, um, it's going to help balance the car. It's going to help turn the car. I mean, you, there's a lot of different things that you can do with that. Why didn't anyone else think of doing it? And then there are the people that can say, well, they did think of doing it, but they realized that it was illegal and therefore they didn't. And those are your Ferrari fans. You don't have to listen to them. But in this case, the FIA did listen to them and won the case against McLaren. So McLaren was, uh, this solution was banned into the 1998 season. But as far as I know, there weren't any consequences beyond that. Now, uh, McLaren is a bit at fault here uh, in that they were calling it brake steer, right? So McLaren's initial defense was it's not a steering system, it's a braking system. But I started with this, they literally called it brake steer. So when it came down to Ferrari's argument, you could easily say, hey, look, my argument is valid because even they called it that, brake steer. And so Ross Braun then coined the term fiddle brake, which is the other term I had been using for this. Instead of calling it brake steer, they call it a fiddle brake to kind of move away from the statement that they were using four-wheel steering. Uh, four-wheel systems aren't, weren't and aren't allowed, and therefore... Um, they would have to ban the system uh, going forward, which makes sense. But this is kind of one of those areas where I'm like, mm. and imagine if they would have if they would have accepted it, if they would have said it is it's an acceptable use of the brakes. Would we still be seeing this in F1 now? Is it that big of an advantage that we would still be seeing it in F1 and in other racing? I'm surprised we don't see it in other racing. I'm sure now the language within the rules specifically talks about this and the ability of, you know, or the legality of doing it versus not doing it. Um, but, I mean, it, it, it just it makes so much sense. Uh, it's something I would want to do at some point. I definitely have it in stretched my car enough to get to that level it would just be a crutch at this point but i mean if you're competing and you want an edge i mean i'd say it's a pretty simple way to gain an edge to get a little faster half a second faster super super significant but that is bending the rules with the mclaren second break edition and that is our episode you can find us at 91octane.com that is all letters no numbers also like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast follow us on instagram we just hit 20k thank you all 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 for all your support all your engagement 
and even going to the 91 Octane shop and uh, supporting that way of getting some swag. It all, all helps. If you want to send us any emails, info at 91octane.com. And you're always free to DM me. Um, it's been fun to engage with every single one of you. Um, I try to get to every message that I can. Um, it might not be immediately, but bear with me. I will get to them. So feel free to send those messages. But I think that is all. Have a good night.